0: Hello, I'm Mike Mella. That's Sean Smith. This is the Website One Hundred One Podcast. Welcome back. And today we have an excellent episode. We have a special guest, Andrew Welch from NY Studio One Hundred Seven. He's a web developer. He's a podcaster, uh, and we're thrilled to have him on the show to talk about website optimization. Sean, how are you doing? I'm I'm doing
1: great. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with Andrew. He's one of my favorite people in the craft community.
0: Uh, an educator and a true leader. Yep, it's going to be awesome, and I'm sure everyone is going to learn, uh, including us, (laughs) a lot about website optimization and what you should be doing uh, to make your website uh, run as efficiently
2: as possible.
1: Welcome aboard, Andrew. How are you doing today?
2: Sean, Mike, thanks for having me on. I'm doing great, and I'm hoping to learn from you as well, so let's do it.
1: All right, so Andrew, uh, picture yourself aboard the Starship Enterprise, (laughs) the Enterprise D, with the entire crew of the next generation. Picard assigns you to an away mission with Riker, Troy, Wesley, and two other crew members. You realize you and the other two crew members are the only ones wearing red shirts. Oh, God. You start to feel (laughs) uneasy about the mission. After an hour, your team is ambushed. The other two red shirts have already been killed. And suddenly, the entity known as Q appears, snaps his fingers, and stops time. He says you can live if you tell me what website optimization is and why it's important. What do you say?
2: (laughs) First, I would compliment him because I know he's a very vain individual. I would pay him some compliments. Um, Have to. Yeah. Uh, And then what I would say is website optimization is all about courtesy. It's about making the experience for the visitors that visit your site uh, to be a pleasant one, regardless of the device that they're on, the connection that they're on, um, et, cetera, et cetera. It's sort of like if you had a a shop, you want to make it as inviting as, po- as possible for everyone to come in. You know, you wouldn't mm-hmm. want to have it to be uh, inaccessible. You wouldn't want it to have it to be, uh, you know, no parking out front. And really, that's kind of what you're trying to do when you're optimizing a website is you're just trying to make sure that the experience that people have is a good one. Um, and the other person, person in quotes that you want to think about are bots when they are crawling your site. You also want to make sure that it is performant when they are crawling the site because they'll they'll have a crawl budget. And the, the quicker that they can do all their thing, the, the better.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess a lot of that would involve, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the room, I suppose, is like Google indexing your site and how efficient does Google think your website is? Because now we hear all these things about, you know, Google is punishing sites that are not, Uh, optimized for mobile use and things like that. So that's another, I guess, reason why everyone should be really mindful of this kind of thing. eh?
2: Yes, it is what's called a a ranking signal. And there are lots of ranking signals. So I don't want to overstate it, even though I care a whole lot about web performance. It's not like uh, it's suddenly Google is not going to show your page anymore. Like if you were Justin Timberlake and you have your own justintimberlake.com or whatever it is, and it is the most inefficient piece of garbage website on the planet, you're still going to rank when someone searches for it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one of many factors. However, the web is super competitive. So if you have other people in your space, similar names, similar industries, whatever, any advantage that you can get over them is going to be important from a ranking point of view. And it definitely is a ranking signal that will uh, potentially affect that in terms of the Google pagepeed performance uh, performance in terms of uh, mobile and a bunch of other ranking signals but the other thing to keep in mind is not just the search engine results but when someone actually does click through you know are they on their phone staring at a white screen for 3 minutes when they're trying to get into a taxi cab somewhere you know mm-hmm. or does the page load quickly because they'll just bounce man people will just navigate away if the experience is poor or they'll just have a not great customer experience, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's something to think about is not necessarily just, is it a ranking factor, but what is it like for the person when mm-hmm. the person actually does end up clicking through and getting to my page?
1: I, I don't know how, how many times I've been frustrated trying to log into um, the CRA website. That's the Canada Revenue Agency. Mm. It is slow and clunky. <laughs> it, it's it's like the IRS, but for Canada. Right. And it's a government website. It's yeah. it's slow. It's frustrating. And I basically, I feel what you just described.
2: Well, there they cannot care, right? Because if you have to log <laughs> into the CRA or whatever it is, then you have to, and there's no other choice right. or place you can go to. But if exactly. you have the-
1: I, I go there once a quarter. Yeah. And that's it. I never go back. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right. But <laughs> as long as they get their their your your money, that's all they. That's all they're interested in.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and again, if you're in some kind of a niche where you're the only game in town, then you can just happily, if you're insensitive, you can not care about web performance. But if you're in a competitive market, which most people are, then you really do have to think about that uh, and a whole bunch of other things, as opposed to just the fact that the site exists, that you have to think about, is it a good site? And performance mm-hmm. is one of those things that, in my opinion, determines whether it's good or not. I do it too, man. It's amazing. Like I I make fun of people, you know, those are young whippersnappers and so impatient. But I do it too, man. Like I'll I'll, I'll Google something and I'll tap the result. And if that thing doesn't load in a certain amount of time, back button next result. Like I do that all the time. I do too. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that's true. Just to go back to something you were saying earlier about, uh, you know, SEO and all that. um, I'm always saying to my clients that SEO ends when they reach your site you know like sure they they search and they do that and they find you on the page 1 and that's all great but when they click on that link suddenly they're in your hands and google's not going to help you do anything so if your site is a disaster at that point you, it can still negatively, negatively affect your your brand it's even if you're at the top of the google results for your it's going to
1: increase your bounce rates at a minimum if your site is is unfriendly and slow
2: yeah yeah for yeah, sure. Yeah. And the only part of SEO, quote, you know, sort of SEO that continues on after that, I think would be if they decide to share a link with the site um, yeah. and then you want to have, you know, the, the social sharing and, and all that kind of good stuff. But yeah, for sure. For sure. <coughs> you know, partly mm-hmm. you can imagine it again, like a real world analog, you, you did some advertising or you've got a great signpost. So someone pulled into your store, but you don't want it to be a dumpster fire when they walk in where, you know, they got to walk over trash and <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? And it's the same yeah. thing.
1: Right. So, so Andrew, for, for our listeners who are generally uh, less technically savvy, you know, you know do it your solvers or, or small business owners where they focus on their business, what are some of the contributing factors to a slow website that they may be unaware of?
2: Well, there are any number of contributing factors. And what I would say is the best thing that you can do is be data driven in terms of what are we going to do to fix this site or to make this site better and to use any number of existing tools that are out there that will give you some metrics and tell you these are things that you could improve. And they will even give you links to pages that will tell you you know, how mm-hmm. you can improve these things. And the reason that's important is like I don't you know as much as I'm a fan of critical CSS, for instance, I don't think it's something that you should just jump in and, and add to your site um, unless it's part of your build process, and we'll, we'll get into that later, but yeah, part of my spiel is that it, it's not that much harder to build a performance site as it is to build one that's slow. You just have to upfront set the expectations and the, the framework so that you are building something that ends mm-hmm. up being performant. Like you start with the chassis of a race car, not the chassis of a Chevy Nova. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you bolt everything else on top of it.
1: <laughs> uh, you you use that exact metaphor in your dot all talk that I
0: just watched uh, this morning.
2: It might've been a different, might've been a different car. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's funny. funny. Well, that, that, <laughs> that just shows you that I'm not very original.
0: <laughs> we, we did the same thing. We're always the, the, the analogy we always say here is uh, managing a website is like managing a garden not building a house. It's not like it's built and it's done. You always have to maintain it. We've said that a billion times on this.
1: Mike uses that one. I I use this like owning a car. So it's a a flip flip on which one we're going to talk about.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the best thing you can do, I think, you know, we can go down a bullet point list of, you know, common things that you need to do, but the best thing that you can do is be data driven. So use Google PageSpeed insights, run it on your site, and it will give you a list of things that it thinks are wrong. And it will rank them in order of importance, and you can attack them in order of importance.
1: Uh, We're going to include a link to the Google PageSpeed Insights Mm -hmm. in the show notes. Uh, It's free service. You pop in your link, and it tells you uh, various things that are good or bad about your site at mobile as well as desktop and gives you tips on how to improve it. Yeah. I use it all the time on every site I build.
2: Yeah, Google PageSpeed Insights is great, and also uh, Lighthouse is great. It's something that is built into your browser. The only thing to keep in mind when you're using Lighthouse in Chrome, I should have said it's built into Chrome, not whatever browser you might happen to be using. The only thing to keep in mind is that if you're running it there, it's testing the connection from your computer on your internet to your website's host. And that's what it's testing. If you use one of these cloud tools, lots of them will test from multiple locations or will let you pick from multiple locations. And, and test the website. So you just I'm not saying don't use Lighthouse because Google PageSpeed Insights actually incorporates Lighthouse into its results. All I'm saying is if you are testing locally, be aware that you're testing your connection from your computer and your probably very high speed computer, very high speed internet to your website. And you may not be doing a, a realistic test. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, but the, the other test that I do is uh, webpagetest.org is a great website for doing testing. And I'm recommending that you do the test first because you got to figure out what's wrong, right? And we also only have so much time to put into the optimization or maybe only so much budget, you know, depending on what the, the client wants. So let's get an idea what's wrong before we try to fix it. And uh, another analogy that I use to discuss this is, You wouldn't just go to your neighbor's medicine cabinet, you know, pull out whatever prescription meds they have and start taking them, right? Because they may have a condition totally different than what you're suffering from. So (laughs) why are you going to do that? You got to go. You got to go to a doctor. You got to get a diagnosis, figure out what's wrong, and then fix what's wrong with that specific site, you know? Mm -hmm. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense.
1: So... uh, do-it-yourself or he's maybe got a WordPress site or a Squarespace site, you know, some sort of page builder. What are some things that they could do to improve performance without actually touching the code?
2: Without actually touching the code, what they probably could do is make sure that their images are optimal. Usually on any web pages, a large amount of the stuff that ends up getting downloaded are images. So they can make sure that... They are sized properly, for instance, like you're not uploading a 5,000 pixel wide image that's displayed at 100 pixels across, you know, mm-hmm. and and these are things that those tools that I mentioned will pick out. Like you, you'll you see immediately, it, it will tell you, Google PageSpeed Insights will tell you that these images are, are too big. Mm-hmm. But that is something you can definitely do is make sure that the images, you resize them in whatever tool that you want. There are lots of free tools that will even do it. And you can just resize them from there and and make sure that the images are small because that's going to be one of the biggest things that gets downloaded. The other Absolutely. thing that a do it yourselfer can do or marketing types can do or whatever is don't go crazy with all of these tracking scripts that are on your on your website in terms of the marketing uh-oh. Sean let out a, you let out a sigh. What's the matter, Sean? <laughs> What's the um, matter? <laughs> you, you've mentioned his bread and butter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, there, there's a reason I always do my page speed test before the site goes live because as soon as it goes live, I know marketing is going to touch it and add in like 25 different tracking scripts. Mm-hmm. And instead of getting in the 90s for Google page speed, it'll be down in the 60s.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing to understand about that though, is and as a developer, I share your frustration. But the people that are adding these tags are doing their job, right? They're, they're like, I want to track this stuff, you know? Oh, I,
1: I I agree with it. It's just, do you need to add five, 10, 20 different tracking services instead of only say two or three?
2: Right. Well, and, and what I'm suggesting is that they're not programmers. So maybe you need to explain to them that there is a cost involved in adding these tags, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And Because I've done that. I've gone in and I've worked with marketing departments and I've said, Hey, did you know that this thing that you call a tag, this is actually JavaScript that's added to the page. And here's the cost of that JavaScript. Not only does it have to be downloaded from somewhere and it's going to download, you know, any number of other things that are coming down, but that also JavaScript is much heavier than an image. Like a megabyte of JavaScript is way more costly in a browser than a megabyte of an image, And the reason is that it's not just the download cost, it's that the browser then has to parse that JavaScript. It then has to execute that JavaScript. It may have to reflow the document. JavaScript can be very expensive. And when you explain to them that this is something that they need to keep in mind when they're adding them, that can make it a little bit better. Like you let them know up front that this is what... Education
1: goes a long way.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I do have uh, an article on that, that I'll, I'll link to you. Then we can put in the, the show notes for it where it kind of talks about that, but try to limit the amount of tracking that you're doing. And not just that, like have a plan, because one of the things that I, especially people that are inexperienced with doing this type of thing is they say, well, what tracker should we have? Well, let's just add every tracker that we possibly could have. Cause I don't know, like, you know, we might need it at some point, They're which all free. is free. They're all free. Like, why, why not just add them? You know, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're free does
1: not mean without cost. <laughs> that's
2: right. a very good point. Yeah. We're sitting here as developers, going, "Oh my god, like Facebook, like, please don't, please don't do this." But it kind of makes sense from their point of view, which is that yeah. they don't know what they're going to need. Maybe they're not really sure. Makes sense to kind of start capturing that stuff anyway. But it really, I've seen it so many times that they will add every tracker under the sun. And we'll be investigating their what they're actually doing with that data. And they're not doing anything with it. You know, they don't yeah. have a plan of actionable things that they're going to do with the data that they're, they're then capturing. And we set up systems where a person, like a physical person, would be responsible for every tag that was added, that would be attached. Their name would be branded to that tag that's added to the website, as well as a justification for what it was there for and what it did. And in larger organizations especially, it was actually really useful because they could go back in and audit that and they could revisit with the person and say, do we still need this? Are we doing anything with this? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, That's that, a
1: great idea. Yeah. So what do you do? You doc, You put it as a comment in your code or there's like a shared document with uh, everybody yeah. in the company?
2: Yeah, they have a, a shared, or whatever system they're using, you know, if they're using Jira, mm-hmm. you know, whatever organizational system that they're using. But the real thing there was, ownership because i can't tell you how many companies that i've gone into and they're asking me to fix stuff and i'll be looking at it and i'll be like okay do we need this tag and they'll be like i don't know
0: yeah why is that even there not sure
2: who put that in i don't know what are we using it for i don't know and so this was designed to kind of solve that problem as well as help mitigate the problem of it affecting the the front end performance
0: right right and and what you said earlier about uh related to this, the JavaScript and how, uh, you know, in load intensive JavaScript is I had a situation like that just yesterday with a client site where I, uh, did a, a, one of the, the speed tests on the site and one of the highest, I think it was like a over two seconds of load time or something, something was slowing it down. And I was like, what in God's name is this? And I looked through the, cause it does, as you said, give you, uh, you know, actual examples of what the problem is. And it turns out it was, a commenting, the popular commenting service called Discuss, where you can sort of plug in this thing and let people comment on your articles, Mm. which is very good. It blocks spam and it's good for a bunch Mm -hmm. of other reasons, but it also fires up its own whole set of JavaScript. And it said that that particular one, at least on that day, at that time was causing all kinds of speed delays. And I remember having, having this problem on a previous site where I dealt with it by instead of just having it appear on the page, You'd scroll to the bottom of the article, and there's a button that says, post a comment. And when you click on the button, then it loads, because you've already decided to engage in commenting. So only then do you wait for this thing to load, and it doesn't slow down the page beforehand. Yep. So things like that are, MailChimp was another, where there's a MailChimp form to sign up for a newsletter. That loads a bunch of JavaScript in order to to verify that it's a, a working email address and all that. So all these kind of things can weigh down your your site. Yeah.
1: Uh, and there's things like Hotjar and Full Story and all kinds of tracking stuff that adds uh, scripts. Uh, and just going back to what Andrew was talking about, tags and stuff, uh, he, he shared with us in the chat uh, a link to one of his blog articles, Tags Gone Wild. We will include that in the show notes as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you guys mentioned it. That's just something we see all the time, right, <laughs> in terms of the the marketing tags that are everywhere. So, And I, I really do think that these people are professionals. They want to do a good job at what they're doing. They just don't know that there's a cost to yeah. adding these things. So they're hedging their bets and they're just adding everything. And I do think that a little bit of education goes a long way in terms of just letting them know, hey, you know, you you have conflicting goals here. You're telling me that you want to convert customers, but you're adding so many tags that you're causing customers to bounce because they don't want to deal with the slow load times and the jank and the they're you know they're either their fans turning on or their their uh, phone locking up, and if you explain to them that it's a competing goal that performance is directly related to bounce rate, and you don't want the observer effect happening where you're adding so much stuff to observe them and see what they're doing that you're changing their behavior, you know, and I think yeah, that's a big I, problem.
1: That, right, that is right. a good point. Uh, anecdotally, I used to have uh, full story and Hotjar on my site. At the same time, mm-hmm. just cause I, I wanted to try it out. sure. And after a few months, I realized that I was never using it or looking at it. Right. So I did a page speed test and then I removed it and I did another page speed test and my score increased by like seven or eight points. Yeah. And it's out of a hundred. So that's like a seven or 8%. That is a significant gain.
2: Huge gain, huge gain. I mean, yeah. the best, the most performant code in the world is the code that never executes right? So <laughs> if we're talking about optimizing something, if you can just get rid of stuff, then that is the best optimization that you can make typically. And and Mike, you made a great point about discuss uh, and not loading that until you click a post comment button or, or whatever. Something that I've also done is you can use the uh, scroll API to know when that particular thing scrolls into view, and then you can oh, just right. lazy load it then, and it it will just like magically appear. So think about it. That's
1: the intersectional observer. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The intersection observer API. And what you basically do is, um, it's the same thing with response or or, sorry, with lazy loaded images where what's the point in loading images that the person can't see ahead of time, Mm -hmm. you know, and Google Chrome has added this to their browser and other browsers are following suit that you can add an attribute to your images, which is loading, Equals equals lazy. lazy, Right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that any image that is not above the fold and above the fold is whatever they can see when they first open their browser without scrolling. And it, you know, all right. So trivia here, which one of you folks knows why it's called above the fold? Oh, we're,
0: we're all, we're not, we're, young. we're, we're not, we're, we're not, here. Okay. Yeah. We're, 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 all
1: old. We remember newspapers okay. being folded up yeah, in the yeah. newspaper machine yeah. and it's above the fold, what the main headline is of the day. Exactly.
2: You know, what you can see when you walk by the newsstand right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's where it comes from. And the idea is that, well, there's no point in loading all of these images until we know if the user is ever even and scroll them into view. And that becomes especially important on mobile devices, right? Because... First of all, the amount of stuff that they can see versus how much stuff there is, is usually a lot smaller. And then also their connection is usually um, not nearly as good and often is metered, you know, where you're, they're being charged per, you know, gigabyte that they download or or whatever. It's not unusual for people to have plans like that. So Mm -hmm. why load stuff until you know that they need it? So the idea with, with loading equals lazy is images don't load in until they scroll into view. Well, we're talking about doing the same thing with the discuss comments, you know, Mm -hmm. and why load all that JavaScript until they actually get down to to where they could post a comment. And you're touching on one of my pet peeves, which is every freaking website in the world has a contact page with a map on it. Right. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, they're loading all of the Google APIs to just draw this one stupid map that's just sitting there. And it drives me insane, okay? So first of all, number one, number one, don't load any of that stuff until you scroll down to it. Like you can lazy load that stuff. If you search like lazy load Google maps, like you'll find it, it's no problem. The other thing you can do is why are you even loading all of these Google APIs to display this interactive map that people don't need to be interactive? Like just take a screenshot of the map and stick it on the page. Or if you really want to, Google has uh, APIs for getting a static image, right? You can have the static image. And then if someone interacts with that uh, map by like clicking on it, well then you could lazy load the map APIs and let them interact with it if you really wanted to. But Mm -hmm. the the real thing to think about here is when you're sitting there as a developer and you're building this thing, think about the other person that is sitting on the other end and what they're doing. They're probably on their phone. They may be in the middle of getting onto the tube or a subway connection may be terrible. Think about them and only load what you need to load. Imagine that you're going camping and you only really want to pack the few things that you're really going to need. You know, you don't want to, to absolutely pack everything. And yeah. I think if we approach it from that point of view, thinking about different people in different scenarios that are going to be visiting the page, then we can start thinking about, okay, how can we make this better better for everyone? Which is, again, in my view, that's what web optimization is about, is making a better experience.
1: Right. right. It, it's kind of in line with accessibility. And, you know, for, for users that say, well, everybody in the city has, like, high-speed internet and good connections and stuff. Well, they're not the only people visiting your site. What about yeah. people in rural areas that maybe they want to drive down to your site to use the Google Maps if they have that image, they could just print the image or look at the image. They don't have to waste all of their valuable internet, which is usually metered out in the countryside and also slower. So it's not just people in the city. You have to think about all users.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing you can do is you can just have a static image there, and this is a cheap way to do it. You can have a static map, right? Optimize, of course, like fit to size, do all that kind of good stuff. Lazy loaded, probably, because they're usually at the bottom of the page. You know, just add loading equals lazy. You don't need a. So I'm just going to mention it real quick. You don't need any JavaScript. You don't need a polyfill. You can just add loading equals lazy. And if browsers don't support it, they'll just ignore it. Like you don't Mm -hmm. have to do any kind of feature detection. It's nothing you got to do. It eventually will be supported. You'll be making it better for a percentage of people. So why not? Just add the tag. Anyway, so I have a lazy loaded map image that's down at the bottom. And then if they click on it, have the URL be the URL to Google Maps that opens it up in a new tab with an interactive map. You know, that's a a quick, easy, no JavaScript way that you can add the interactivity and still have decent performance.
1: Uh, And I also, I really like that as well, because if they click that on their mobile phone, it will open up the Maps app. And so they could start using that to navigate if they're in their car or whatever.
0: Yeah, that's right, because those little uh, iframes of the map on a website often are a nightmare to use when you're on a phone, because it's like, use two fingers to scroll the map, and there's all this kind of special instruction. Sometimes it's better to just have it fire up the map.
2: App, yeah, right? it's, it's the worst. Like, I don't I don't get why so many people are putting these interactive maps. I and mean, now, granted, some websites need it. You know, they, there may be a map-based functionality that they have. And that's like fine, a, but but
1: if it's like just... a store locator or something like that.
2: Yeah, or, and it could be any number of things like that. But if it's, if it's literally a map to where your office is located or where your store is located, just make it a static map. Make it a link to the actual Google, you know, link so it will open in whatever map that you're using. Just do that, you know? Mm-hmm. Hi,
0: hope you're enjoying this episode. We're always looking for topic suggestions, so if there's anything you'd like us to discuss on the show, please let us know.
1: We're also looking for guests. If you have a guest that you think would be uh, great for our podcast, please let us know. If there's a guest that you would love to come back, uh, let us know. You can do that by visiting website101podcast.com slash
0: contact. So just let's take a a little step back here. Just before the sort of actual website optimization, I wanted to get your thoughts on hosting. So the vast majority of our audience probably has their site hosted on what's called a shared host. Can you tell us a little bit about what a shared host is versus, say, a VPS host? And do you have an opinion about, you know, whether or not that is going to significantly affect the performance of a
2: website? So real quick, a, a shared host is kind of like living in an apartment. So you're in a smaller space and you are going to notice your neighbors more. You know, if you've got a kid next door to you or you've got neighbors next door to you that have got kids that are banging on the walls, it's going to affect you. If you've got neighbors upstairs that are doing marching band practice, you're going to hear it. So shared hosting is kind of like that in that you have resources that you're sharing with other people that are on the same host. If you have a VPS, then you you are guaranteed a certain amount of CPU performance that you will always get. And it is yours and yours alone. Um, mm-hmm. At some point, you know, it's all as my friend Patrick likes to say, it's turtles all the way down. So even VPSs are shared at some point in terms of shared resources. But the key is that you're guaranteed an amount of compute cycles. Whereas with shared hosting, whoever comes first gets it. And I've seen, you know, in the bad old days, you used to see it all the time where there'd be like, there'd be one site that's on the shared host that suddenly gets a lot of traffic and then everyone else's site doesn't even work. You know? Yep. Yeah, I've, I've had that happen <laughs> yeah. twice in yeah. the past. Yep. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Or, or the, they're on a a website that gets hacked because of some bad code or a plugin and it takes down the entire server of 150 other websites that had nothing to do with it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, And a VPS is a little bit more abstracted out. Again, it has guarantees in terms of how this will affect performance other than what you mentioned in terms of the, if something negative happens, it affects everybody. I think that you probably won't notice a huge difference in performance until you start getting up to scale where there's lots of people visiting the site. I mean, I, I in general, recommend some kind of hosting where you are guaranteed a certain amount of something. You know, whether that's using uh, Matt Gray's served.host, where he takes care of all the fancy framework for you, or whether that means you have a VPS through Arcus Tech or Fort Rabbit or in any number of other sites, that's fine. Or a VPS that you spin up and manage on your own via Forge or Ploy. Mm-hmm. I think what's important is that you have some kind of guarantee of what kind of compute cycles you're going to get out of that host. I think that's what matters more than anything else. If you're cool. setting up a new site and it's on some kind of shared hosting, just take a minute to think about it because there are so many solutions out there that will let you get away from the negatives of shared hosting and still have a very easy to use managed host.
1: Right. So, um, so shared hostings, things that, uh, listeners would be familiar with would be things like GoDaddy Uh, or Bluehost or uh, HostGator. uh, (laughs) And and you can hear Andrew groaning and, I would be groaning if someone else was talking. So I, I'm, I'm with them 100%. <laughs> so a shared host like that, you're not going to get any sort of guarantee. And these are the hosts that you're going to get those repercussions that I mentioned earlier about your site getting taken down if somebody's hacked or yeah. maybe they get on the front page of Reddit or or whatever. And people like those hosts because they're super, super cheap and affordable. Yeah, But honestly, with a little bit more budget, you can get VPS hosting, managed VPS hosting yep. for maybe 15-20 a month. Yep. If you want to do it yourself a little bit more using something like uh Laravel Forge and uh DigitalOcean, you can do that for like 10 bucks a month.
2: Even five, by, even five. Yep, yeah, yeah. It yeah.
1: requires a little bit more savvy and yes. knowledge, but you know, 15, 20 bucks, like you mentioned, Arcus tech or, or served. I've got one client site on served and it took me a little bit to get used to it. Cause they have their, a different approach, but the the support that Matt provides on there is top notch.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I call it hosting. you know, so yeah. and,
1: <laughs> absolutely,
2: you know, if you have five bucks to spend, you know, you can get a, a big Mac or, or whatever. And if you have six or seven bucks to spend, you can get like an actual good burger somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's not. Right. I don't know. You could
1: go to the Burger King.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so, Andrew, uh, what's your thoughts on caching? Hmm. Yeah, Is this uh, caching and minify, minifying resources, which are other things that can help with optimizing code or optimizing your website? Sorry.
2: So the the two things I have to say about that is, again, if you are a web developer, um, get familiar with what the best practices are for performance and build that into the way that you make sites. And I think you will find that you're not going to be really spending a whole lot of time, additional time, building sites that are performant versus building just sites the way you used to build them. There is a little bit of extra work in some areas, but in general, I think that if you start with a scaffolding that says performance matters, then you're going to end up with a site that by default is going to be pretty good. You know, it's not going to be terrible about it. If you are auditing an existing site, I I would not get into any of this stuff. Like I wouldn't get into minifying resources. I wouldn't get into caching. I would, I would measure what's wrong. And then I would address what's wrong and, and hit it from the top. A lot of times minifying resources is not going to be at the top of the list of stuff that could be potentially better. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it could be, you know, again, it depends on the site and how bad and, and what's wrong with it. But the idea with minifying resources is just, especially on mobile devices, we only have a certain amount of bandwidth and there's higher latency on mobile devices as well, which is the, the time, uh, the back and forth time, essentially. Mm -hmm. So let's make the stuff that we're downloading as small as possible. So if it can be compressed, compress it. If it can be minified, which is just removing the white space, then let's minify it as part of a build step. That can definitely be helpful. Mm -hmm. Caching is basically just not doing the same work again. Imagine if you went to go brush your teeth in the morning and what you did is you went in and you opened up the cabinet, you took out your toothbrush, you shut the cabinet then you opened up the cabinet again and you took your toothpaste out and you shut the cabinet. Then you put the toothpaste on your toothbrush and then you open the cabinet and you put the toothpaste back in, you you know what I mean? Like you wanna do all this stuff all at once, you know? And that's the idea with caching too is, you also don't wanna do the same thing over and over again. Um, If anyone (laughs) who has kids, there's nothing more annoying than having to tell your kid, do this, they don't do it do this. I asked you to do this, do this. You know, you don't want to keep repeating yourself and doing it again and again and again. Right. Yep. And that's really all caching is. So caching is some work was done. I'm going to save this work. The next time someone asks for this work, I'm just going to return the work that was already done. That's all that caching is. And they, in every computer at probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of different places, there is caching all the way down the stack in terms of stuff that is going on. Right. Um, so caching is definitely something that can help you with what's called concurrency. So it's how many simultaneous requests, for instance, that you you can handle. But really, if if the work if whatever you're returning doesn't need to be dynamic, then why are you dynamically figuring it out every time? Figure it mm-hmm. out once and then return it. You know, I mean that's what caching is fundamentally. So
1: basically caching the first time the computer does the work saves that information somewhere. The next time somebody wants to visit that page just goes, Oh, I have this over here in file cabinet a and throws it at you. Boom. Yeah. Rather than doing all the calculating and processing and slow work.
2: Yeah. And you may think about it, you know, you may build a website in in, in craft or WordPress or whatever, and you may be like, Whoa, but there's dynamic stuff in there, but is there really like, I understand that it's computed dynamically, but are you returning the same thing to every person? And a lot of yeah. times you are, and if you are, then it doesn't matter how dynamically it was computed. What matters is the result is the same. So we don't need to do this every time. We can just do it once and then return the cache. You know?
0: Yeah, I, I'm I'm going through a, a situation like this right now with a client where um, I have there's there's article pages where they have you know the title, the body, and all this. But then it also relates, every article relates to one or more authors, Mm -hmm. which is in a separate sort of part of the database. So then it has to pull their author name, their headshot, some of their bio, and it puts that at the bottom of the article. Oh, and then it also has five images that are associated with this article, and it has to go and get those. And then there's this caching plugin that I'm testing out right now, where once it does all that, as you said, it's sort of, it's almost like it takes a picture of the result. It's not literally a picture, of course, but... It just saves it as one flat file. So the next time someone comes and asks for the same thing, which, as you said, if it's the same article, it's going to be the same author, it's going to be the same images, just serve up that picture. And then you don't have to ask the database for all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Andrew,
1: what about um, people who don't know how to set up caching? Maybe they're, they've got a WordPress site. Is there uh, something that they could do? Maybe install
0: a plugin or
1: use a third-party service or something?
0: What WordPress plugin... Do you use <laughs> Andrew?
2: <laughs> so there's WP Total Cache. There, I think Jetpack has some caching stuff in it. I have not built or used a WordPress site in a very long time, so my knowledge right. is outdated. Right. But I do know that there are a number of them, and you know, do what you do with any uh, system and any plugins. You search on what you're looking for. Look at the ratings. Look at how many people are using them. Pick one that, yeah. that seems reasonable, and away you go. Right.
1: Are there any uh, third-party services that could help with site caching?
2: There definitely are third-party services that you can be using. Um, It may be a little bit difficult to get into it. So there's uh, Fastly, for instance, is a service that you can use. You can also use CloudFront and what CloudFront essentially will do is you can tell it any request for anything. I want you to just serve it from a cache. And it will cache those pages. It will even uh, put them on uh, what are called edge locations. So if there's a server physically near you, it will serve it from there. The reason I kind of hesitated is that if you didn't design the site to be full page, statically cached from the beginning, you could run into complications trying to, implicate, trying to implement that.
1: Oh, okay. And
2: the reason is, okay, so let's say it's something simple like, I've got a web page and it has a, a login. And then after you're logged in, it says, like, hello, Andrew, you know, or whatever. You can't use full page static caching for those pages because it's going to be different for each person that's visiting your site, you know?
1: Mm. Right. If, so if it's full page cache yeah. and Brian visits the site, it'll say, hi, Andrew.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, a lot of sites, are. that's not the case, though. A lot of sites are just marketing brochure sites. There's no login. Nothing is different per person. Those, 100%, you can just set up with CloudFront, and you just configure it to also cache all of the HTML responses that are coming out of there. And then, then I mean, you're good. And the only thing you have to deal with is making sure that the caches get cleared appropriately when you change content.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Nice. next nice. one. All right, so let's get into image optimization a little bit if we can. I know that you have a, a lot to say you've written some plugins having to do with image optimization. <laughs> what What can you tell us about? we we mentioned earlier, if you're taking pictures you know straight out of your smartphone and they're at ten megabytes, <laughs> you know do something before you upload them, make them smaller first, or whatever. Uh, but what else can happen uh, as far as uh, you know optimizing images for a website?
1: I, I'd like to interject for just one second. Mm-hmm. Uh, last week, I had a client that I built their site with for a long time. And, uh, one of the staff came to me and said, I can't upload this image to XYZ page. Well, I opened up the image. It was a 5,000 by 3000 pixel image, Mm. 15 megabytes. So the server doesn't allow you to upload that large of a file. Mm. I've just configured it like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, the field instruction said, you know, put it at maximum 2000 pixels because it it was for a hero image it needs to be a little
0: bit wide Mm -hmm. it just couldn't upload but it makes sense though because a lot of people's phones iphones like the default settings if you don't change them the the images are incredibly big so if they are i have clients where you know their staff are abroad elsewhere where in the world and they use their own phones to take pictures of their volunteers and things. So it makes a lot of sense that you might have a photo that's enormous. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Just
1: just imagine if a visitor to your website goes to the site and you've got this 15 megabyte image that's displayed at 200 pixels by 300 pixels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That'll slow it down.
2: Well, this is a case where I would say that, uh, first of all, we should never be shaming or making fun of people that don't know that these images from your phone are huge because it's very reasonable for a very smart person to not know that right it makes sense why would they know that you know um just because you know a particular sphere of knowledge doesn't make you you know any more or less intelligent than anyone else and it Anyone can fall victim to this, right? No matter what industry you're in, you're a developer, you're uh, someone that does audio, you're an artist, you know, whatever it is, the stuff we know, we, we think are assumptions that everyone should know this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you got to think yeah. about it. Your job is to make sure that they don't have to worry about that, right? So yeah. one of my number one rules is never display an image that the client uploads. If the client is able to upload it, never display that image. It is always something that you should be transforming into a size that is reasonable to fit and be displayed on the website. Um, and I think that's on you as a developer to make sure that that is what ends up happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah I, and I, I do that as well. But my, my point earlier was that to illustrate that clients or even Owners of a website not be might not be thinking about how large the image is that they're uploading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even when that user resized it to say 2,000 pixels at uh, lower megabytes, the actual final website is still going to be resizing and optimizing it using an image plugin or image server on the service on the server.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here's a way that I would couch it for everyone out there who's listening, who is a developer. Maybe you have kids. If you leave a whole bunch of lot knives laying around on the floor of your house, and your toddler comes over and hurts themselves, whose fault is it? You know, whose fault is it that that happened? Now, I'm not equating. Clients yeah. to toddlers, okay, but I, my my point really is <laughs> that it's your job to to childproof your house and it's also your job to client proof the site so that yep. perfect perfectly reasonable things that someone might do are not going to cause a technical problem and I think that's yep. on you as a developer to do right.
0: so let's talk about a little bit about responsive images. I think our listeners have all probably heard the term responsive recently uh, and you know generally it has to do with the, the site adapts to whatever uh, screen you're using. So if you're mm-hmm. using a small screen like a smartphone, it sort of collapses into one column or whatever, and you can still read the text. It's not all tiny. you don't have to zoom in. But how does that affect uh, image optimization? Uh, what, what what can you know what should they be mindful of? What should they make sure their website is able to do in the image realm as far as optimizing things for different platforms and that?
2: So if you think about it, when a website is being designed, A designer will be using a full screen browser and they'll have this beautiful hero image that maybe maybe it's even hand drawn art that they created. And they Mm -hmm. just think this thing is the most amazing thing in the world. Or maybe it's a a brand image from the company that you're working for. And they're using this large browser window and they want it to look amazing as they're designing it. So they've got a 3000 pixel wide image, right, to make sure that it looks good on their high-resolution screen, right? If yep. that's all we ever do, then someone who's browsing your website on you know, a, a smartphone from 2010 is going to download that same 3,000-pixel-wide image to display on a 300-pixel-wide screen. Right? Mm-hmm. This is a terrible yep. situation, and it's yep. ter- terrible for a number of ways. So let's go all the way down the chain and look at why this is terrible. So number one, the most obvious one probably, is that if they're on an older phone, they're probably on an older network. So it's gonna take a long time to download this image. Even if they're on a modern 5G network, it's still gonna take longer to download it than it will on your high speed broadband internet, okay? Then the image needs to be somehow displayed Well, the phone is either gonna have a GPU built into it, which is dedicated for manipulating images, or it's gonna have to use its built-in CPU to resize this image into something that can actually be displayed on the screen. That actually is a pretty intensive thing to ask this little mobile computer to do. So it's gotta physically resize this thing so that it can be displayed properly on the screen. And that takes up a whole lot of energy on their end to do that. And then multiply that by any number of images that you have on the page. And and let's go even further. So let's talk about the energy that is wasted from your phone, trying to do this. Like your phone is now heating up. It's now become a hand warmer because it's trying to do all of this work to transform these images. And um, the cell towers are doing more work in terms of transmitting more data back and forth. Like there's a cascade of horribleness, that comes along with this if you only give stuff the biggest that it could possibly be you know it's like if you went to a restaurant and the portion size that you got was for the biggest person that would ever visit that restaurant so you get like five plates of food stuffed in front of you and there are people are there watching you going okay finish it you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> it's like I just
1: wanted a small salad.
2: It's not a good situation. So what the the web standards have come up with is the idea of a source set, which is basically just a set. It's the same image, but it's resized to a bunch of different sizes. And then the browser can then pick, okay, based on the device that I'm displaying on, this is the image that I want. And it will be only that image will then be downloaded and then displayed. Mm -hmm. And there's a great website for getting insight into this um, there's a responsive breakpoints and you guys can put that in the show notes if you want. It's from Cloudinary. They have a vested interest because they run an image transform service, but it's still a really nice website that will give you a feel for what it's like to generate a source set and and what it looks like. Um,
1: Yeah. I opened up the site and it lets you upload an image. And then there's a, a bunch of sliders that you can, move around to generate the image that you
2: want. And there's another website that's one of my favorite things that, so I'll I'll be honest with you, the doing responsive images right is actually kind of difficult to do. It really is. Um, It is kind of a, uh, it'll melt your brain a little bit when you're trying to figure out exactly what you should be doing. And I don't know how deep you want to get into it. It is complicated. It really is. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't at least do the basics and at least have made people's lives somewhat better. Right. There's a difference between making people's lives perfect and making it better. Right. And if we can do a little bit of work and make it better, that's, that's, you know, you don't have to go all the way and make it hundred percent perfect. You can, if you want, like I would encourage that. That's my personality. I would, I would say <laughs> definitely do that, but it's better that you at least try to improve things a little bit. You know, the camper's motto, leave things better than you found them. Than it is to do nothing. Right. So I just don't want people to get discouraged and say, oh, this is so complicated. No, at at least do the basics. At least provide a source set so at least, you know, a smaller images can be picked. And what I do is um, I always forget where this article is. But what I do is I Google image source set, S-R-C-S-E-T, and then peas, P-E-A-S, like the peas, the vegetable. And yep. I know it's crazy, but you'll find the article I'm talking about. It's from Eric Portis. Okay. Right. And so I'll I'll give when, you that link. When I
1: two. when I'm writing up the show notes, yeah. I'll like, I'll do that exact Google and
0: for you. You should you should just put that Google search in the show notes. Don't link to the site, just put that piece. Thing. You should.
1: I I will. I will. I yeah. will. So, uh, you know, this has been a really great conversation and It might, like Andrew just said, it might feel overwhelming to have all of these things that you need to do, but the key is to do at least some of it, make improvements because the returns will be that you're going to lower your bounce rate. You're going to improve the experience for your website visitors. And that should theoretically give you a better return on your investment. You'll get more conversions, more sales, more contact forms filled out, whatever the goals are for your website.
2: And the, the other thing that I would say, and this is key for developers that are out there listening, not necessarily do-it-yourselfers, but developers that are listening, is take a snapshot of the current client's Google Speed insights before you do any work. And then after you have done the optimizations, take another one and show them the difference. And yeah. the reason that matters is they're not going to understand all the stuff that you did and that's fine. They don't need to, but they will understand that Google says this was bad before and Google, this brand that I know and trust now says this is good after that'll make a big difference. And that will allow you to to charge a little bit more for the work that you're doing because you are doing demonstratively better work. Right. Yeah,
1: and uh, I, I do that. Regularly, when I'm pitching a client or providing a quote, I'll take a screenshot of their page speed insight score of their current site. And I'll say, look, you've you scored 60 or 40 or 20 or whatever it is. And this is my target for when I finish your website, that it will be above mm-hmm. 90. And, and that's always my target. I mean, I, I try for 100, but it's not always possible. But as long as I'm over 90, I personally am satisfied. And when they can see an improvement from 40 to 90. Yep. Wow. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's the two pronged approach that I take with it. So one is that if you invest a little bit in yourself to learn some of these things, then producing a performance site isn't usually that much more work than producing one that is not. And then on the other hand, if you are actually producing sites that are better performing, you can absolutely charge more for your services because you are delivering something that is demonstratively better. And when you combine those two things, one, that it's not going to add a whole lot of time to each project. Yes, there will be some upfront learning. Yes, but you'll be forced to, to grow a little bit. But I think uh, ultimately people enjoy getting better at what they do for a living. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you are going to be producing work that is better than the average person. And you can use that as a selling point to your clients.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Absolutely. It pays dividends. Anything that I've, uh, I've learned about, uh, website optimization, whether it's from Andrew or from other developers has already paid for itself in my ability to deliver a website. Like the last website that I launched, I wasn't consciously thinking about optimization until just before the end, because I, yeah. I was crazy busy at that time. Yep. Went and did the page speed score and I got 95 yeah. and I didn't actually do anything. Yeah. I was just because I had already knew all the best practices yep. subconsciously. I was just building a site, yep. got 95. So you, exactly. if you put the time in, it's worth it. And it makes it easier mm-hmm. and better for your, your clients.
2: Uh, that's exactly it. And that's why in, uh, you know, master builders, are, are that's why their rates are so much higher, right? They, they just are really good at what they do. You know, I still remember vividly that we had uh, some work done in our bathroom. And the we put in a a new shower and they had these big pieces of glass that end up being joined together by silicon. Essentially, that's like the only thing that holds them together, you know, to give it that nice, clean look or whatever. The guy comes in to do it. And he's like he's like the man like this. Everyone gets out of his way. He walks in. He's got his his silicon gun. He's up there. And I remember him saying to me, he's like if you could do a bead like this, you could charge $500 an hour too. And then he proceeded to go up there and just like put out the most amazing, precise all the way down. And then he was just out. And I'm just like, you know what? That's an allegory for it. Like get really good at what you're doing and you can charge more.
1: Jonathan Stark says all the time in his business related podcast, you Mm -hmm. niche down, you become the specialist and you are the master.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. And and to our listeners, uh, anyone who's, you know who is feeling overwhelmed or whatever, or is a little more DIY than than what we're talking about. Feel free to reach out to someone like any of us, and we'll we'll be happy to help you with uh, doing any kind of small optimization that that needs that needs
2: doing. You know, well, and that's the other thing. So a lot of, and I'm I'm not pimping my services at all, mm-hmm. but that is another thing that I do a lot of is developer training. And if you want, if you want a, if you're listening and you're a developer and you want to get better at something. You can hire someone to train you how to do it, and just cut through—you know—cut your way through the the learning curve. Or you can go to videos, or you can go to articles. There's just lots of stuff that you can do to make make yourself better at what you do. Right,
1: hundred uh, percent. I have paid somebody to help me. Yeah. Uh, learn learn one key thing that I was struggling with. Sure. It made a difference. You know, I've also bought courses from West Boss or Udemy or whatever. Yeah. Attend conferences. Yep. Uh, and one uh, another really great way to learn and improve is to write a blog post. Mm, yep. uh, I have a blog. Uh, Andrew has an amazing blog, but I, I I also have a blog, not as good as his, but <laughs> I am writing my blog posts to future me. Yeah. And as I write it, I learn it better. Yeah. Cuz you're explaining it to other people. Yep. It helps you improve
2: that That's a hundred percent true, and first of all, thank you for the compliment, but i I don't think that I would call my blog amazing but yeah. <laughs> but the 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 thing about it is when you're writing, not only are you writing for somebody else, but I have found that I improve my code immensely when I do that for for two reasons: yeah. one, I'm like, well, I don't want to show anyone like this. Crap shortcut yeah. that I took. <laughs> this is terrible. Right, why would I? You, you don't. You want to teach best practices, right? You you tell your kids the the best thing that you, they could be doing, even though you might not always do it yourself, right? And so that kind of thing. But then also you think about it more deeply. Like it's it's what, kind
1: of rubber ducking.
2: Well, yeah. What's what might someone not understand? Or in the process of explaining it, you actually figure out the problem better, and then you can refactor the code to be better and. I agree with you 100%. Uh, going through the process of of writing this out is is super, super important. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: uh, and for listeners who don't know what rubber ducking is, mm. it's basically uh, the idea is that you have a rubber duck or any sort of object, and you talk uh, talk to that object about your problem and talking through the problem, you find the solution. So Andrew, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the online if they want to find you?
2: They can find me at nystudio107.com where there are some articles and also at nystudio 107 on Twitter. Excellent. Awesome.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. As I say this all the time that, oh, this is everyone's gonna learn a lot from this episode, but this time it's really, really true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this time <Absolutely>. for real. <laughs>
1: The website 101 podcast is hosted by me, Sean Smith. You can find me on LinkedIn, my username is Caffeine Creations, or on Twitter where my username is CaffeineCreation, C-A-F-F-E-I-N-E-C-R-E-8 I-O-M, or at my website caffeinecreations.ca.
0: And by me, Mike Mella. You can reach me online at belikewater.ca. And also on Twitter and LinkedIn, where my username is Mike Mella. That's M-I-K-E-M-E-L-L-A.
2: Can I speak Canadian to you too for a second?
1: Well, Anytime. we are Canadian.
2: Can you, What what is the word that you say when you're apologizing to someone? Sorry. Sorry. Thank you. So one of the things that my, my wife and I are huge fans of Kim's Convenience, right? Which is a oh, yeah? Canadian well, set. I walk
1: past the store. It's an actual store. It's not a set.
2: Yeah, it's it's just, we absolutely love it. We think it's amazing. And one of the things we note, my wife pointed out to me actually, is that everyone was saying sorry, 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 sorry. And I was like, yeah, you know, I've noticed that a lot of Canadians say that. And then I thought about it and I'm like, you know what? I think the Canadians are right, as a matter of fact, because we we say sorry, right? Right, right. But it's not S-A-R, it's (laughs) S-O-R. So it really should be sorry.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry.
2: Yeah. S O R
0: R Y.
1: Well, okay. So I'm I'm going to put uh, my linguistic training here. Mm. I have a master's in linguistics. Oh, in good. ESL teaching. Good. <laughs> there is no right way to say a word. Language drifts over time. Sure. Wrong. Uh, <laughs> All right. No, no, but, but it was, it, uh, that's where accents and stuff come in. That's why the sure. British sound different than we do. Or even in the United States, for example, you'll have uh, the Boston accent or right. the five boroughs of New York all have different accents. Uh, I believe I kind of have a standard Midwest accent because I came from, uh, I'm from Winnipeg. But, you know, like Newfoundlanders will say sorry different as, differently as well. So there's really no right way. And that's why I'm a descriptivist whereas there is prescriptivists with language and that's kind of where you, when you said oh the right way to say it is the canadian way that's kind of prescriptive
2: well far be it for me to argue with someone that has studied this but i'm going to do it anyway cuz i don't care cuz i'm going <laughs> to i'm going to argue it anyway if you have no. rules for a language right if you say that this vowel makes these sounds and this consonant makes these sounds i think you can arguably say that there is a right way to pronounce it as a, yeah. as an example. So when I grew up, my grandmother used to say washing machine. Oh yeah. Put it in the washer. And I'm like, when I got old enough, I'm like, grandma, there's no R in that word. There is no R there. I yeah. want to say that my grandmother was demonstrably wrong. Like I understand it changes over time, but if we have rules for this letter sounds like this, this consonant sounds like this, that, you know, I don't yep, know.
0: I I couldn't agree more. And actually, I, I don't know if this is gonna this particular one's gonna make it into the show because it's a little high level. But <laughs> no. I want to ask you, how do you pronounce the web related term that's spelled R E G E X? You know what I mean oh, for regular yeah. expression. How yeah. do you pronounce that term? I say, oh, I want to know
1: this too.
2: I say regex.
0: Yes, regex, regular expression. Yeah, uh, I, See, say, sh- I say I say regex. He says rejects, and I know someone who no, says rejects. Re-
2: rejects are things you don't want anymore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's two words combined: reg x. Yeah. Reg x yeah. is the accurate way. Yeah. Th- I'm prescriptivist about that. That's for sure.
2: Yeah. No, and and Sean, like to your point, like I understand. It makes sense that language changes over time. The meanings of words change. I'm on board with that. I'm on board with the meaning of a word can totally change over time. There are words that we could use before can't use now or words we used to use that used to mean one thing. Now they mean it totally. I understand language is totally fluid. It's whatever we make of it. But if we're going to lay down the rules for this vowel makes this sound, this consonant makes this sound, I think we can arrive at this is a, a correct way to say it. There, there has to be, there has to be an incorrect way to say a word, right?
0: Okay. Well, I, yeah. I so if they're if, if sorry,
2: comment. if they're sorry, right, I say, sorry, you say, sorry. If I said, Beelzebub. You would tell me yeah. that's the wrong way to pronounce that word, right? Like that would be demonstrably uh, wrong, right? right? Right. I
1: I, w- I want to say that there is a correct way to pronounce a word in time, mm. at a specific time and a specific location. At
2: this specific time, <laughs> <laughs> O does not make an right now a, an R sound. It doesn't make an A sound, so it shouldn't be okay. sorry. It should be Google sorry. The, right. Google
1: the Great Vowel Shift. <sighs> That's all I'm going to say is in your spare time, Google, the great vowel shift took place in the 1400s to 1500s.
2: I'm afraid to, I'm afraid I'm going to get and, lost and in YouTube for old, days. Old
1: English is pretty much <laughs> incomprehensible to modern speakers.
2: Right? Yeah. That's true. I, I have heard that. Yeah.
1: Well, and there have been Anyways, efforts. We've gone way off.
2: topic. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't know if we <laughs> should fun. cut
0: this or not. It's yeah. yeah kind of fun though. Whatever.
2: Maybe some, whatever you want. You would put an extra at the end or something.